0: Good morning. All right, that's pretty poor, but I'll, I'll accept it. We're in our uh, seventh lesson on the series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And uh, the title of this message is, Who's in Charge Here? Or leadership, the duller title, Leadership in the New Testament Church. I snitched that expression, although I'm sure it's a very common one, from uh, James Dobson. You remember when he would talk about raising children, uh, that was one of the expressions he used. Who's in charge here? But it's an important question, and it's one that we need to address. A couple of Sundays ago, I talked about uh, barnacles on the bottom of our boat, meaning those things which we have uh, sort of gathered uh, uh, into the church and Christianity as practices, uh, which really come from history rather than from the New Testament. And I want to focus on a couple of those barnacles, uh, pretty big barnacles, uh, this morning as we talk about leadership in the church. And specifically, I would be talking about the laity-clergy distinction that is so common today and also the office of pastor which has become uh, generally accepted uh, except for the fact that you don't find it in the New Testament. And that's why it's what I would say is a barnacle. Uh, but I'd like to lay out the message this way. I'd like to talk about the doctrinal foundation uh, that we have for the New Testament teachings about the, uh, the way in which the New Testament church is, is led. And that would include the priesthood of all believers, and the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are other ones that I'm t- I was tempted to, to uh, draw in, but time told me forget it. Then uh, a really critical text, the one that was read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Jesus said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What we had read to us was a command. And and I think all of us have to struggle a bit with how we come to terms with that, but that is what we are to do. Uh, Then I want to talk about the principles, commands, and apostolic practice where we see the way in which the New Testament church and the apostles actually implemented the truths of, of the New Testament and then have some words of application. Let's talk, first of all, about the priesthood of all believers. I should have put an asterisk in your notes and on the screen, and I did not, but let me just say a word about that. I very carefully chose that, the priesthood of all believers, as opposed to the priesthood of every believer, because I think that's the emphasis of the Scriptures. I am not saying that there is no sense in which every believer is a priest. Do not misunderstand me. There is that individual dimension. But so often in Christianity, in our world, we think only in individualistic terms. So that when we talk about salvation, we talk about the forgiveness of our sins and the certainty of eternal life, and those are certainly there. But that's individual. But the scriptures also say that we are baptized into the body of Jesus Christ and that there is a corporate ministry that takes place. And that's why you will see in some translations that it will talk about you are, rather than a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. That is, there is a sense in which the church in a corporate way functions as a In a priestly capacity, mediating as it were between God and men, and, and that is the sense in which I want to emphasize the, the danger with the priesthood of every believer is in our autonomous society, what some people think that means is i 'm a priest, leave me alone i don 't need anybody else, and, and that i don 't think is the sense at all let 's look at, at at some scriptures. Uh, that 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 I think are very important. And, and basically, here's what I'm trying to do in, in this particular segment. You have in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, you have the promise that is made before, actually, before the law is given, just at the introduction to that section where the law will be given in chapter 20, that God will make of Israel a priestly nation if they keep His covenant and they obey his commands. And then you just see this thing just sort of vaporize and it doesn't return until we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 where it talks about the church as a priestly kingdom or Revelation chapter 1 or chapter 5. And we see this reference to the church as a priestly kingdom. And the question is, what happened to the priesthood, the the priestly nation from Exodus to revelation what what happened where did it go and what is distinct about that so look with me at exodus chapter 19 verses 4 through 6 you yourselves have seen what i did to egypt and how i lifted you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself and now if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant then you will be a spe- my special possession of, out of all the nations for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words God says that you are to speak to the Israelites. So this was a promise that was, that Moses was to make to the Israelites, and then somehow it just sort of goes away. How does that happen? Well, look with me at just, let me just make reference to that text in Deuteronomy chapter 5 where this is the second giving of the law, and Moses is now looking back upon that first giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20, and, and he says, the Lord, in, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 4, the Lord spoke face-to-face with you at the mountain from the middle of the fire. You, plural. Now, I always thought that God only spoke face-to-face with Moses, and, and the text is clear in Exodus 33 that he does that. But here it says God spoke face-to-face with them. There are other instances, uh, that text that was read from Genesis chapter 28, God spoke face-to-face with, uh, with uh, Jacob. So there are other instances where it's talking about this intimacy uh, between God and men. And God is offering Israel that intimacy with him that will make of them a priestly nation but something happens, and we find what that is later down in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Look at verse 23. Now, Moses is looking back upon what happened in the initial giving of the law uh, in Exodus chapter 20. But he says in Deuteronomy five twenty-three, Then when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze, that's when he spoke with them face to face. All your tribal leaders and elders approached me and you said, you, the Israelites, said to me, Moses, the Lord our God has shown us his great glory and we have heard him speak from the middle of the fire. It is now clear to us that God can speak to human beings and that they can keep on living. Remember, that was a question that was up for discussion. Will I see God face to face or will I see God and then survive? Well, they didn't see him literally face-to-face, but they had an intimate conversation there uh, on the mountain. Verse 25, but now why should we die? Because this intense fire will consume us. If we keep hearing the voice of the Lord our God, we will die. Who is there from the entire human race who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the middle of the fire as we have and has lived? Well, think about that for a minute. Who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire and has lived. Hello, Moses, right? And so they're saying, we know you survived. So you go near so that you can hear everything the Lord our God is saying, and then you can tell us whatever he says to you. Then we will pay attention and we'll do it. Now, They're saying, we're afraid. This whole priestly nation thing and this face-to-face thing, we're not really into that because it's a really dangerous thing and we know we're not going to make it. We're not going to survive. You're going to kill us, which is true. Listen to what God says in verse 28. When the Lord heard you speaking to me, he said to me, I have heard what these people have said to you. They have spoken well. If only it would really be their desire to fear me and obey my commandments in the future so that it may go well with them and their descendants forever. What God is saying is, you were right in asking for a mediator, namely Moses, because they were a people so sinful that God would strike them dead. And you know that that event happens very quickly Uh, In Exodus chapter 32, the worship of the golden calf, and God says, I'm just planning to wipe these people out. He could have done it, and we read in the book of Numbers chapter 14, God said, that happened ten times. So this was a people who had the sense to recognize that they could not meet the requirements for priestly uh, status, just as they could not meet the requirements for salvation. The law was given not to say, here's what you can have if you work hard, but here's what you can't have no matter how hard you work. So it wasn't really a bad decision that was made. Then we come to the uh, the New Testament, and we discover that uh, that this whole issue of the priestly nation gets taken up in Revelation chapter 1. Verses 5 and 6, listen to these words. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood and has appointed us a kingdom as priests serving his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. See a similar statement in Revelation chapter 5, as I've indicated in your notes. And then we come to this text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what happened to the holy priesthood? The holy priesthood was offered but it was offered upon condition that they would keep the covenant and they would obey his commands, they recognized at the outset that couldn't happen and therefore they pled for someone in their place. And that was Moses who was the intercessor for them, a prototype of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that was Moses who would take that position. When our Lord Jesus Christ came... He came, of course, as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so on the basis of the forgiveness of sins that came through his perfect atonement once for all, now the issue is no longer there that men are disqualified because of their sin because those who have been saved are freed, are cleansed from their sin, and therefore the priestly nation is fulfilled in the church under the new covenant because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the priesthood of all believers becomes a dominant theme in the New Testament because, I think, of the work of the Lord Jesus. And we'll play that out a little bit later. Now let's look at the headship of Christ. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, that is simply a command of our Lord against idolatry. But what gets very fascinating to me is then what we read and and pick up in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 through 8. That's a text that you really should focus on. Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 6. I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. Is that not ultimately a promise about our Lord Jesus and his coming? Notice what it says now in verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise that is due me with idols. Now, I, I take it there's a two-fold uh, element to this. A, when it comes to idols, I will not tolerate you giving glory to an idol when you should be giving glory to me. But the other half of that is to say, I will not tolerate you giving glory to anyone else other than me. So it is not just uh, cast, uh, fashioned, golden images that can become idols. It is literally men who can become idols. And I think you see that in Israel's history when they want a king who they can see. And you remember, it is because Moses is up on the mountain and they're not sure he's coming that they want a golden image because they want somebody to lead them. And if it has to be a chunk of gold, they'll go for that too. So God will not share his glory with anyone else. It's clear that he is going to be, as God, glorified in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see those texts that I've listed in Ephesians chapter 1, and you remember it talks about God putting all things under Christ's feet and giving him to the church as head over all things. Now, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God has chosen to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross, Colossians says, he has proclaimed a victory over all of the evil host. He has been exalted to the supreme position and he deserves all the, the glory. The key text that I want to focus on is in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, and in particular upon verse 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven." You'll notice there that I I cited not only the Net Bible, but look at the uh, New King James, and I must confess, I sort of prefer this last uh, rendering. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, that really is a very, very serious statement, and I believe it is the theological basis for why our Lord can say what he does in Matthew chapter 23. What does it mean to be the head? Well, we don't have time to go into that very much, but let me just say this. Headship is, involves source. Jesus is the head of the church in the sense that he is the one who brought the church into being, just as you have the head of a river and so on headship involves a guidance and sustenance and we see that in terms of the relationship of the head to the body but one of the things that's associated with that is supremacy the head is that thing which gets visibility and prominence and i think that is related To Paul's words about how heads are dealt with male versus female in the church is that somehow the head is the place where prominence and glory is displayed. And if Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then he must be preeminent. And anything or anyone who takes away or seeks to take away any prominence or glory or preeminence that belongs to him, they're in trouble. And, and Jesus made that, I think, crystal clear. Now let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 23 and talk about the things that our Lord Jesus says there. This is a tough text. This is a tough text. And as we read it, you have to say, it's just full of ouches. Uh, when, when Jesus starts out, he says in verse 1, <clears throat> Or verse 2, the experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, he doesn't really make a comment about whether that's legitimate or not, but the reality is the office of scribe and the office of Pharisee, so far as I can tell, is not really a biblical office. It sort of came about like offices in the churches do today. Jesus lets that one ride because what he's saying is, so far as you as a nation are concerned, here are the people who have, who, who are in authority. And I couldn't help but think about that text in Romans 13 where, where our Lord now, or Paul is speaking uh, and, and says of civil authority, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. I think what our Lord Jesus is saying is, These religious leaders have been placed in a position of authority. And to the degree that it is possible, you are to regard that authority and you are to acknowledge it. Now, it's interesting uh, how various translations handle that. The The Net Bible says, pay attention. But I think others say, obey what they say. So there is a way in which so long as that person in authority is not requiring us to do something that God's Word forbids, then we are obliged to do it. If you think in military terms, the, the sergeant may be a class A jerk. It doesn't matter. You are not going to be able to say to the lieutenant or the general or whoever else is going to be talking to you about it, well, I don't want to obey him because... I don't like him. So what? That's where he's been placed. And the whole thought is, I think, that God has allowed these men in those positions and, and that they are, to be, uh, uh, they are to be heeded to the degree that you can. But look at where he stops and the line he draws. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Those of you who have been reading uh, uh, accounts from from the Middle East uh, know what that kind of authority structure looks like. And, and there are, it is in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, there are places where people desperately want somebody who can tell them what to do And show them what to do. And so, as you know, when 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 the teacher's house gets painted a particular color, all of a sudden you discover that everybody else's house is the same color. They want to follow. This is a huge ouch to the scribes and the Pharisees where Jesus is saying, acknowledge their place of authority, but don't follow them. Well, that's huge. That is huge for him to say that. And he says, the reason is... They don't practice what they preach. They don't, they're hypocrites. Don't do what they do because they don't do what they teach. Listen to their teaching, but don't do what they do. Now he begins to specify how that spells itself out. Verse 4, they tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to, uh, to help. Remember in Galatians chapter 6, where it talks about how we are to bear one another's burdens. These guys love to lay burdens on people, but they don't help people carry them. And when you put burdens on people, in effect, it elevates you. It's like being in a race and putting 50 pounds on the on the guy that's running next to you. It just helps you out. He says, the Lord says, that is an evil. They seek status rather than... Service. They want places of honor. They want titles of honor. They, they trip all over themselves so that they can be in that perfect, proper place where everybody says, here's number one. So that's the model that we are not to follow. Now look at the lessons in leadership that Jesus gives us beginning at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. I think this may be the key to understanding all of those, and and it is this way. Any title which sets a particular person above other people, and I don't think we're just talking about authority here. I think we're talking about the fact that you are no better than someone else. When I was reading in terms of the, the days of the early church, one of the things that came about very early on was this, this, this false conception that one who was a, was a bishop or, or, ha, or later on was a priest, that they were somehow different. They didn't put their pants on one leg at a time. They were just a notch above humanity. That's just not true. And Jesus is saying... You are all a brotherhood. You are all equal. And when you start elevating somebody up there, this is Jesus' place. This is Jesus' place. And and you guys are all down here. So don't elevate yourself above uh, other people. Now, obviously, God has given men positions of authority. But where one man gets set up above the others, it seems to me, is a problem. These were all apostles who were in positions of authority. But one man was not to be their superior, as I see it. Only God is to do that. I was thinking, this is an easy, I like to stay on this verse because I, I think of uh, the Imam, I can think of the Ayatollah, I can think of all kinds of other titles, and I can say, do not be called Rabbi. This ought to really hurt the Jewish folks. So I want to stay there. But it goes on. And he says, do not be called father, for God is your father. Now, he says, don't call anyone on earth your father, because you have a heavenly father. Now, I do not personally understand that to be a a prohibition against calling your biological father, a father. You can call him dad or pop or whatever you want, but I don't think that's the point. When you look in the Old Testament, you remember the prophets were called fathers. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen of Israel. It's talking to a prophet and it's placing him in a position, a higher position of authority. But now that Christ has come, it seems to me he's saying you ought you ought not to do that when I was uh, teaching in an institution there there were, were some Catholic uh, priests that would be uh, there associated with the school and I have to confess to you, I could not call the Catholic Father father I could not do it and, and i would i don 't think I would today i, I don 't think that 's legitimate because I think it is a title and position that when I read this text i just I just find that that 's something i can 't do now. Those are the, the easy ones that's been talking about everybody else. Now you get to the last. Don't be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. This is a tough one, don't you think? This is where I go, ouch, that's me. Uh, you know, those other guys, I'm, I'm happy with that. But now it's gotten close to home. How do we deal with that? Well, it seems to me, by the way, the translations differ a little bit. Master, I think, is one of the ways that that's translated. But but the point, I think, is the same. And that is that our Lord alone has a position of preeminence and power and authority. And he is the supreme teacher. And he is the one whom we ought to follow. And anyone that steps into that role... It seems to me that that is illegitimate. Watch the titles, because that's what Jesus has been saying. The symbolic things, those things, where the places where you sit, uh, I even think, you can tell me, I'm I, I probably one of the worst dressers in the bunch, but, but one of the things I vow I am not going to do is look different from you. <laughs> Man, you do! Well, but that's different. That's different. That's a different kind of different. I'm not going to wear a garb that says I am something that you are not. To me, that is a way of setting us, setting into, into existence this kind of, 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 of you know, hierarchy of, of beings that if we're all brothers, I'm not sure how that can work in the church. Now, Jesus goes on then in the, in the last couple of verses to talk about the attitude that one ought to have. Here's the way a leader Should lead. Verse 11: The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humility. These guys were into ego, they were into prestige and power, and Jesus says that stinks because that's not the way in which Christian leaders lead. Christian leaders lead in such a way that they're always pointing to me. They're always saying, don't look up to me, look up to him. You you know, in churches where where leaders fall, and, and that's a horrible thing, but in some churches it's more devastating than in others because people have put too much stock in the person rather than in Christ. When you have people who are too devoted to you and the Lord takes you out one way or the other, then people may be, uh, may be stumbled by that. Whereas if all of our teaching has been saying, don't follow me, follow John the Baptist. Don't follow me, follow him. Then when you're out of the picture, John the Baptist was, he just said, he must increase, I must decrease. No problem. Seems to me, that's what our Lord is saying. Oh, by the way, as I think through the New Testament, I don't know of one occasion in which any of the apostles are ever called by one of those labels. N- not any instance, nor do I know of any instance in which they refer to themselves by any one of those labels. So all I'm saying to you is whether or not we take it seriously, <laughs> those boys did, and, and we ought to take that seriously. Um, by the way, Paul, what does he call himself? He calls himself the chief of sinners. That's not exactly a status title. He calls himself an apostle because he was. Sometimes he had to appeal to that authority. And he called himself a bond slave of Christ. Good titles. Good titles. And they fit what Jesus said. New Testament commands, principles, and practices. I will hustle along. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, we've already seen is the command, don't don't be called by titles that elevate men. Titus chapter 1, appoint elders, plural, in every city. I think you could gather from that that the church is to be ruled, is to be governed, is to be led by a plurality of elders in each and every church. First Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock. By the way, isn't that interesting? Aren't there kind of reminiscences of John chapter 21? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now Peter's saying, shepherd the flock. Acts chapter 20, uh, chapter 28 through 31. In particular there, Paul is addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus and he is telling them to be on guard because there is going to be doctrinal impurity. The same thing was true in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy as well. One of the things that elders do is to guard and protect the flock from false teaching. General principles. You're all brothers. I think that we've talked about that, and maybe the priesthood of all believers fits in with that as well. Body life, and by that I mean the concept of a body that is made up of a diversity of people with a plurality, with a diversity of gift, that are all working together. So that when we talk about ministry, the ministry of Christ, we are talking about the ministry of Christ through his body, not just individuals, but the body working together in unity and harmony. By the way, let's just talk about unity for one second. There is the unity of uniformity. That's where you got one man on top and everybody knows when he cracks the whip or she in some cases, I suppose, where where, uh, everybody's got to get in line. That's uniformity. Where Christian unity, the unity of the Spirit becomes evident, is when the Spirit of God is working in every one of you in your hearts and lives and we all are working together and accomplishing what God has for us as a body, granted with the involvement of of elders as well. But when we have that kind of unity, that is a unity that should catch our attention. Fourth, I didn't have this on your notes under the principles and commands, the Word of God is our authority. Boy, this, I, 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 I had it on my notes. And I didn't get it on the PowerPoint for whatever reason. But the Word of God is our authority. It is not man. That's part of what the Reformation was about, uh, that you don't rely upon men. You rely on God's Word. And that's why Paul in Acts chapter 20, when he is warning them about these false teachers who are going to rise up from within... What Paul doesn't say is, I need to appoint a successor to me. I'm going to go. He tells them, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm not coming back. So I need to appoint a successor to me so we can make sure that everything takes place right. He says, I commend you, what? To God and to his word. It is the word of God that is the authority. If a leader or a teacher has authority, it is the authority of Scripture. If that teacher steps beyond the limits of what Scripture says, the authority just isn't there. That's the basis for authority. Okay, quickly. The New Testament commands principles and practices as in terms of how to lead. Well, Matthew 23, not like the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew chapter 20, not like the Gentiles. You remember the the Gentiles, they love to push people around, and uh, this is, this is in the context of James and John, his mother, uh, coming and asking Jesus if her sons can be on the right side and the left side, and Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For just so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is interesting, I will say, and I've got in my notes, not like the false apostles of 2 Corinthians 11 verse 20, Remember where Paul says, for you put up with it if someone makes slaves of you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone behaves arrogantly toward you, if someone strikes you in the face. There are some Christians who are just masochists, and and they want to go to church and they want to have the preacher just whip on them so they can get all bloody and and go out and feel guilty and and whatever. And, And Paul says, that is not, that is not our style It is not our Lord's style. And uh, you remember, our Lord's style is, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Paul says in Thessalonians, I came to you and I dealt with you as a nursing mother deals with her child. That's the biblical model for leadership, not the arrogant, self-assertive style of some. Uh, the New Testament uh, practice, and, and bottom line, if you look at all those texts, Acts chapter 6, the, the issue of the widows being fed and the deacons or proto-deacons, depending on how you want to call them, uh, being appointed. Acts chapter 13, uh, Barnabas and Saul being sent out uh, on their first uh, missionary journey. Acts chapter 14, they everywhere on their return, they, they appointed elders in every church. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, and Acts chapter 20, that whole text, all of those is speaking to a plurality of elders. Nowhere in the New Testament do you ever see one person who is the head of that church. Our Lord Jesus Christ assumes that role, and he does very well, and nobody's supposed to get in it. So what you have is leadership by a plurality of men uh, consistently throughout the New Testament. And I guess I just have to say this. Folks, there is just nowhere in the New Testament that ever calls any man the pastor of the church. Nowhere. And that's just a barnacle. And we just got to come to terms with it. And, and you could say, well, maybe, you know, it isn't just the changing of the label so that a rose by any other name is still a rose. It's the reality. Nobody is to take our Lord's place in the church He is at work in the leadership of the church in a plurality of men, so that when decisions are reached, it is apparent that he has directed that through his spirit. In the in the in the Lord's supper meeting and the worship meeting in the mornings, I I I am very reluctant to participate there because I I think it's critical that people see that is a meeting where when somebody comes and they look around and they say, "Who is in charge here?" You want to say, yes. That's what it's about. People ought to see Jesus. I'm I'm going to jump to the end and just say this. I want personally, and I believe the elders want it as well, that when somebody walks into the church, when when somebody asks them what we're about, that their answer is, it's all about Jesus. It's not about this is the church where so-and-so preaches. It's not the church where, where this or that goes on. This is the church where Jesus leads his people, where his people worship and adore him. And nobody gets in the way of that. And he leads and he is exalted. I was thinking of the text in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever else you do, like doing church, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that what the New Testament keeps saying? God has exalted His Son so that He may receive all the glory. And that's really the point of all this. There is a group of men who lead in the church so that Jesus Christ Himself is seen as the head and He is the one who gets the glory. That's what we're about. That's what we strive to do. That's why it isn't just me that preaches. Well, I, I preach uh, uh, probably, uh, I know, the majority of the time, we want other gifted men in our body to speak and to demonstrate that there is a plurality of gift. Here's the tension for us, I think, in terms of preaching, because here I am, sort of a lecturer arguing against the lecture system, and, and, and it may look hypocritical. But, But the tension on the one hand is, I believe we want to see sound, consistent Bible teaching. And so... We've set aside the practice that some may have of just having round-robin round Robin kind of preaching where different people in, in, in the church and different people from outside come and, and whatever. That's fine if that's what they want to do, but it seems to me they miss something in terms of the consistency of teaching. On the other hand, we want to be very careful that we do not exalt any person to a place they ought not to be or give false impressions. And I have to tell you this, My job—I'm referred to often as a teacher, sometimes as a pastor teacher. That's a gift. That's not an office. And there are other gifts. It's not the gift of leadership. It's not the gift of administration. And so, what you will see is that I have a particular function and and role to play. But when it comes to how things go, I mentioned—you know—the elders' meetings. I don't lead those meetings. I do not set the agenda. I don't. I don't do. I hope I don't do anything to, to try and press those into a particular way. And then, and a group of guys just rubber stamps it and said, "Well, that's what that's what Pastor so and so wants." You know, that's what we'll do. We've got a group of guys who are good thinkers, good students, and and conscientious followers of Christ. When he brings us together and gives us one mind, that's pretty good evidence that somebody's been leading other than just a human being. That's the way we want it. It's all about Jesus. If you happen to be here and uh, this is your first time or you, uh, uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus, let me make it clear. This is about him. This pulpit is to point to Jesus. It's to say to you, He is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. He is the one who died on the cross of Calvary. He is the one who rose from the dead. He is the one who gets the glory. And He is the one who is the head of the church. And I pray to God that He is the one who has saved you. Father, we thank you for these texts. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and the way in which He led Help us to be like him in that regard. Help us as elders to to manifest the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as a body to manifest that we are a priesthood as a body collectively as well as individually. Help us to live out the Lord Jesus before men and draw them to him. In Jesus' name.